Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today for another episode. I got to speak with Ben Lightburn from Filament Health today. This was an interesting conversation. Um, mental health is really important. And it seems like on a global level, the impression I get is that there's a lot of support needed in the realm of mental health. There's a lot of runway in front of us, a lot of room for improvement, if you will. And I'm excited that there's more and more tools that are becoming available that people can use to help support themselves on their journey of well-being, especially in regards to mental health. What Filament, uh, Filament Health does is extract some of the powerful compounds in psychedelic plants and package them in a way that they could reach the masses more easily. Now, people have been using psychedelic plants for a long time to get all kinds of benefits, but there are risks associated. And the reality is, is a lot of people just won't introduce, be introduced to them through the traditional ways that they've been used. But now that they're kind of coming more into the Western model with all the research and studies that are being done on them, they're gonna be able to reach populations that they just wouldn't prior. Now, Filament Health is a major player in that regards as they have some patents around how to get these important materials out of the plants so they could be standardized and then they could be dosed safely through um, a medical care professional, a doctor or whatever, so that people that could really use the benefits that they provide can access them. So I'm really excited to see how this industry uh, continues to unfold. And it was really great to speak with Ben today to hear um, someone that's, you know, behind the scenes on this and get their take. So I hope you enjoy the episode and thanks again for tuning in. 
All right, Ben Lightburn, thanks for joining me on the Mindful Movement Podcast. I appreciate you taking out taking your time to be with me. My, my pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, you're the CEO of Filament Health. and That's correct. Uh, all right. I don't um, want to make assumptions here, but the impression I get is that there's a, a goal that Filament Health is kind of driven to bring uh, psychedelic-based wellness to more people, make it more accessible, um, more manageable. I'm very curious of what got you into that. Was it, it seems like you're a technology company on some level. Did you get into this space through technology or was it through like a history of an interest in psychedelics themselves? Great question. I would say it's probably a little bit of both or, or perhaps a lot of both. Um, my background is uh, in uh, startups dedicated to the commercialization of novel botanical extraction technology. And I know that's a big word salad. Uh, what that means is, is basically finding new and innovative ways to um, extract high value natural compounds from plant sources. Um, these kinds of ingredients are used in really all different industries, right? Like think about toothpaste has, you know, cinnamon extract, or, you know, you have um, dietary supplements that are green tea or chamomile, or you have shampoo that has all kinds of different plant extracts uh, in there. And so I've, I've kind of built this weird uh, niche or niche, as you guys say, self of the border um, in, you know, discovering and commercializing new technologies for removing these compounds from plants. And then commercializing those extracts in a, in a variety of different industries. Um, myself and my team, we were working together at a company. Um, and in 2016, the company was sold. Um, sorry, 2018, the company was sold. And um, thereafter, we were basically looking around for a new um, project. And this is right during the time when the psychedelics industry was sort of enjoying a renaissance. And the thing that really struck us as a little bit strange was that the vast majority of resources and attention were going toward synthetically derived uh, psychedelic substances, as opposed to naturally extracted uh, compounds, even though all, pretty much all psychedelics actually come from natural sources, right? Like we're talking magic mushrooms, you know, ayahuasca, mescaline containing cacti and, and things like that. And it, it just so happened that over time, it became sort of standard practice to make all these compounds through synthesis, which essentially means, you know, buying building block chemicals and putting different chemicals together in a lab, kind of like Lego. And there's, there's nothing actually wrong with making, we're not anti-synthesis. We don't think there's anything wrong with doing things by th synthesis because it's safe and effective and it's a tried and true method. But we knew from working in the natural products industry that people, well, they prefer natural products, right? You know, you, you, they're not requesting more artificial food coloring, right? They're not right. requesting more artificial caffeine, right? People drink coffee, which is a natural extract or tea, right? And so we decided to bring our experience um, into the psychedelics industry by founding Filament Health in order to make natural psychedelics more accessible uh, to more people. Because what had been missing up to that point is, yes, you know, people could can go consume a magic mushroom or, you know, literally munch on a cactus, right? But the, the problem with doing that is you don't actually know how much of 
the mushroom, how much psilocybin it contains or how much mescaline is in the cactus. So we needed to invent some technology to turn these psychedelic raw materials into commercial grade, pharmaceutical grade um, products in order for them to be, you know, just like you would see in a standard dietary supplement or a pharmaceutical product. It's highly standardized. It's made in a GMP condition. That had never been done before, but it's a necessary step for broader adoption and, and more access. Gotcha. Okay. A nice overview. Uh, curious. I have a little experience with psychedelic medicine and everybody has different takes on it. There are people out there that think that dosing is a little wonky, like as almost as if, um, I don't want to say don't worry about the dose, like the mushroom knows the dose you need which is risky, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> That's one opinion, yes. I can, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, one way to look at it. Um, yeah. But also in the lab, when you're trying to standardize the dose where, I mean, isn't there a lot of variability still of how one dose affects different people? There is actually, that's a, so there's, that's a very good point. There's kind of two variabilities that we have to deal with. Um, one is the natural variability inherent in the natural substance, right? No two mushrooms are identical, right? No two cacti are identical. And when you're working with natural products, your job is to take the target compounds out of the raw material, purify them, and then standardize them so that they give a precisely known quantity of the target compound. So for instance, in the case of magic mushroom, we standardize our capsules to 25 milligrams of psilocybin, which is roughly equivalent to you know, about five grams of mushrooms. Oh, um, okay. But we see different varieties and strains and even from one mushroom to the next in the same flush can have a very wide variability in terms of the amount of psilocybin in there. Even within the same mushroom, the stem has much less psilocybin than the cap, right? So it's really impossible when you say, you know, the mushroom knows the dose. I, this might be a sort of a convenient theory that kind of fits with reality because when you're dealing with mushrooms, it is pretty much impossible to know what kind of dose you're getting unless you've analyzed those mushrooms in a lab. And in fact, you need to grind them up into a big batch and then analyze samples of that. And you know, it's, it's not actually straightforward because like I said, the content varies even within the same mushroom. So if you take a small sample from the base, it's not actually going to give you a representative sample of what's in the rest of the mushroom. So, so that's, so that's one side of the variability coin. But the other side of the variability coin is that you're right. It, different people given the exact same dose will experience different amounts of psychedelic effects. Now, I should say, probably the experience you might've heard about is with people taking similar doses of mushroom powder, right? And, or mushrooms. And remember that all of those had different amounts of psilocybin, right? So we're talking about standardized doses of psilocybin and yet, they still do produce uh, variable effects um, in humans. That's one of the things we're trying to reduce by, um, we've, we've, one of our drug com compounds is standardized uh, in a compound called psilocin, which is a closely related compound to psilocybin. Psilocybin needs to convert into psilocin in the body before becoming active, right? And up till now, all research has actually been done on psilocybin, but we think that by giving the psilocin directly, which is responsible for the effects at the end of the day, we can reduce some of the variability because everybody converts the psilocybin into the psilocin slightly differently. This is known as a pro-drug drug 
relationship because it's a it's an enzymatic process and everyone has different amounts of the enzyme. So again, you're right. Two great questions. There's variability on the input raw material as well as variability that different people affect. But the effects that different people experience, this is relatively common for all drugs, right? Um, you know, and so the point of clinical trials is to find a dose that basically works for most people, right? Um, right. You, you know, when you go to the doctor, you get a prescription, they don't like do a blood test, to, at least initially, right? They don't do a blood test or something to see like if this dose should be higher or lower, maybe over time they might adjust your dose. But in general, the variability of drugs is, you know, it's, it's, it's constant for it, the variability is present in almost all drugs. Is that, so you eat the uh, raw ingredient traditionally, and then your body converts it to the psychoactive ingredient. Is it possible that some part of that process is, I don't want to say like necessary, but in, important for your body to go through that and not deliver the, um, I don't know if it would be called a metabolite or the end product or. Considering the, the mush in the mushroom, you actually find both of these compounds, um, but they're highly unstable in the mushroom form uh, and they will degrade very quickly and like essentially rot away. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that it plays a, like a necessary role. Um, uh, the psilocybin, the conversion of the psilocybin in, into the psilocin, um, because like I said, both are present in the mushroom. So, um, so you're going to get, when you eat the mushroom itself, you get both no matter what. Okay. Uh, whereas when you're in a, in a clinical trial with a synthetic compound, you get just the psilocybin. So the compounds that you're, that you're creating that are as if it's already done. So you're having the psilocin, um, that behaves the same way whether your body converts the other stuff to that or if you just have that directly that doesn't degrade when it goes through the gi track or through the liver that's a that's an excellent question um and the answer is we don't know yet because <laughs> we have this compound in a clinical trial at university of california san francisco okay and we are measuring its effects compared to the psilocybin uh, okay based so compound. that's being done right now that's being done right now, oh, that's right exciting. now as we speak. Yeah, but it will be taken orally. You're not like bypassing the system through IV or anything. That's another great question. So oh. we have the psilocin drug candidate. We've made an oral formulation where you consume a capsule, but we also have it in a sublingual formulation because the conversion, um, the enzymes that cause the conversion are mostly found in the gut. Um, we think that giving that it's, it's called the, the dephosphorylated when the psilocybin, it, it dephosphorylates into, uh, psilocin because it's already been dephosphorylated. We think that, um, um, administration through, uh, a, a sublingual route, which goes essentially directly into your bloodstream through the oral mucosa, um, that could be a, an optimal way of, uh, of experiencing the effects quicker than gotcha. waiting for an onset time. So, uh, the mushroom has tons of other compounds too. Like, do we, I'm sure there's a lot still unknown because from what I understand, there went a long time with really no research being done. And now, you know, there's a renaissance of some sort. Um, I know with cannabis, you hear about the entourage effect of different um, compounds that work synergistically or together in some way. Do mushrooms, um, display that effect also is there a chance that we're removing or that you folks are in your work are 
Um, there's like an unintended consequence where we could be removing things that are needed for the whole experience to unfold how it traditionally has. So th that is another great question. And you hit another big nail on the head. Um, magic mushrooms do contain multiple compounds, um, you know, a dozen or more different um, interesting um, alkaloids. Um, similar to the similar to the cannabis plant, the compounds are quite different, but the principle is is quite the same. Um, and so one of our main um, missions is to actually include all of those active compounds in the final product um, as if in the same ratio and concentration as if you were to consume them naturally. So when I say we have a psilocybin drug product, I'm not being totally accurate. It's a it's a botanical extract that's standardized in psilocybin content, yet it contains all the other active metabolites from the mushroom as well. Psilocin, norbeocystin, beocystin, harmaline heart, all these other compounds, we keep that in. And that's the main difference between our product and a synthetic product, other than it's natural as opposed to synthetic. A synthetic product will only ever contain just one of those metabolites, right? You, you're not going to try to recreate through synthesis the exact ratio of all right. these different compounds. You would drive yourself crazy. It's much easier to extract it right from the mushroom itself. And, and that's what we've done. So all of our drug candidates are, are carefully designed. Yes, we purify. We purify to an extent high enough to remove enough of the undesirable compounds, but not so much that we start to remove all of these target compounds that could be responsible for the entourage effect. It's important to say that there's no proof that the uh, entourage effect exists or is real, but there is lots of anecdotal evidence that people report when they consume different varieties of magic mushrooms, they might have this effect or that, you know, this one makes you laugh, this one makes you shy, this one makes you yawn. If those effects are true, um, and obviously these are all anecdotal reports, but if those effects are true, it could be due to the presence of some of these uh, secondary metabolites in the magic mushroom. Until now, there have been no pharmaceutical grade natural drug candidates, right? And so until our candidates arrived, it was really pretty much impossible to study whether this effect exists or not. Um, and so that's, again, one of the main things that we would seek to prove out over time and sort of, you know, demonstrate that there is a difference between not between not just between natural and synthetic, but also between different varieties of natural mm. as as you know, you would say different varieties of cannabis produce different effects. Right. So For sure. that's you know, and that's due to di different presence of different compounds in the cannabis plant or different coffee beans have different flavor. Right. Like it's uh, like different plants are different. No two plants are identical. And what we like to say is no two human beings are identical and human receptor sites where um, these substances um, have activity, they're not produced by chemical synthesis. They're not monolithic and identical, right? They're all produced by nature and have variability. Yeah, interesting. Do you have a tough time finding participants for the studies to test out? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Especially our first study. Um, it's a phase one um, study and it's in healthy volunteers um, that must have previous psychedelic experience, but not recent previous psychedelic experience. Oh. So we wanted people who are familiar so that they don't like freak out, okay. right? If it's their first experience, but we don't want someone who's like, 
high on mushrooms when they show up in the morning, right? right? So, <laughs> so, like, so, uh, so yeah, the, the lineups are, you know, they're virtual, but they're literally around the block, uh, as you can imagine. They're being done in San Francisco, uh, so it's not exactly a place where uh, uh, psychedelics are the most taboo. Right. Um, so, yeah, we have a very easy time. The other thing in, in Canada, uh, what we're able to do is we're actually distributing our products uh, via a special program called the Special Access Program. It's, it's essentially, it's a program that's not unique to psilocybin um, or psychedelics. It's a program where patients who are in dire need can request access to um, experimental drugs. And if there's enough evidence for the safety and efficacy in advance of their approval, um, and this program has been growing a lot over the last year or so since it, since it started. And so we're seeing a ton of demand from different doctors and patients all around the country. Now, these are people who are typically in a very tough way. They're typically have very serious, um, uh, depression that has failed every other treatment and they're, the patients are quite desperate. Um, or they are, um, uh, typically they could, uh, be end of life, uh, terminally ill patients that may have um, some kind of, um, unfortunately, um, a terminal diagnosis, say, due to cancer or something like that. And they request access to take our psilocybin in a, in a supervised medical setting. Um, and we're hearing generally quite good reports. It's not a, not a clinical trial, so you can't draw really any scientific conclusions. Um, but we are seeing a lot of demand you know, on the healthy volunteer for clinical trials and then also um, therapeutically for patients in the real world. Gotcha. Do you yourself have experience with the stuff that you guys are creating? Or? I, I, as the CEO of a publicly traded company specialized in, uh, in, in, in psychedelics, uh, I think it would be weird if I didn't, but it's also, I, I shouldn't really be out there commenting on any of my personal use because we have okay. uh, lots of, you know, licenses and permits and authorizations and things like that. Yeah. Well, from your experience, like watching these um, studies unfold, uh, do you talk to many of the people that go through it that like do you get? We, 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 we don't typically talk to the patients because of confidentiality, okay. but we talk a lot with the doctors and the doctors report. I, I got a call from a doctor the other day. Um, he was administering our uh, psilocybin candidate to a, woman who had a terminal cancer diagnosis and he described the experience he said that you know the therapists were there he was there her husband was there everyone was in tears you know they came to great you know realizations and lots of breakthroughs they call it right and you know the the psilocybin kind of gets you into a state of mind where you can kind of come to terms with things and visualize this kind of an out-of-body experience right you can sort of take a step back from yourself, right? And um, release any kind of blame or shame. And um, people report that it, um, uh, that it, that it really helps. There's a, another lady that we know that, um, that took the psilocybin and she had a, a terminal colon cancer diagnosis. And um, she did a couple of psilocybin uh, trips and her whole personality, everything about her changed completely. Um, and you can see like before and after, like she, her, her wardrobe is different. She's just a different person. And she actually credits, and I'm not making a medical claim here, but she actually credits her improved mindset from the psilocybin during the cancer, uh, um, treatment 
she credits that with actually the, the cancer going into remission because it changed her mindset so completely. And now that the cancer is in remission and she's no longer terminal, um, she says, well, I'm almost thankful that I got the cancer because the cancer led me to the psilocybin and the psilocybin changed my life completely. So it, it's a very profound story. It, it's a, there's actually a documentary. Um, there's actually a documentary about um, about her. It's called Dosed to the movie. Um, very, very, very fascinating stuff. And uh, Dosed to like the number two. Dosed to. Yep. Yeah, that is fascinating. What do you? I mean, Ben, what do you think's going on there? I mean, you have a compound that enters the body. It binds to receptors. I know. I don't know a lot of the details. I know that there's at least some of the serotonin receptors involved with that. Um, why does that do that? Like, what's going on? Do we do the now that there's more research being done? Are we getting a grip on what's happening? I would say what you just said is about the extent of what we do know for sure. <laughs> uh, okay. No one really knows. <laughs> um, it's they just know that it works. It's it's kind of fascinating. It's very fascinating. Um, there's lots of theories, right? There's different camps about what's going on. You know, one camp will say, well, we don't actually need the psychedelic experience. One camp will say, well, we don't actually need the therapy. Another camp will say, well, the psychedelic experience is puts you into a state where you can receive therapy and it's just the therapy that's happening. And there's lots of competing ideas and theses and obviously business models and all that kind of yeah, thing. Right. Um, you know, there, there's people that are researching, you know, take the psilocybin, and then take a, another compound which blocks the trip, but still they're looking to see a therapeutic effect. Hmm. You know, could that work? Maybe. Um, it, 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 it's not something that the kind of OG psychedelics crowd would be very happy about, but it would certainly be something that would improve access for many, many more patients because you wouldn't have to have people tripping balls for six hours in order to get uh, treated, right? right. Um, basically the answer is like, we, we don't know, right? You know, they'll say it's a, you know, allows people to, you know, depressed people to um, break out of ruminative states, right? So, you know, I'm, 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 I've, I've low feelings of self-worth, uh, I'm depressed and it gets into like a vicious cycle, right? I'm, I have low self-worth because I'm depressed. I'm depressed because I have low self-worth. The psilocybin people say that it allows them to break that cycle to kind of do a, reset on your brain like rebooting the computer kind of and doing so like from an external third party observation perspective right so you watch yourself you say oh like actually i'm not i'm not useless you know i'm 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 actually a great person and i have self respect and you kind of can reset yourself and get into a a positive way of thinking or another thing that people report is that they may have some kind of buried trauma from way back in their past. So maybe they were abused as a child or something like that. And they've buried that memory so far behind and to protect themselves, right? They kind of like covered it with emotional scar tissue or something like that. And the psilocybin, because they're doing a kind of out of body experience, they can kind of investigate that as an independent outside observer into their brain and say, oh, well, you're depressed because of this terrible thing that happened. Now we know that and we can work on that thing. And it's, it's not like it, I'm obviously being quite glib and like glossing over all of these important details, but it allows them to kind of, you know, assign cause and effect to something that's not their fault. 
right? And allow them to, like, like I said, increase feelings of self-worth, have like, you know, contextualize or compartmentalize this other thing. It's complicated. Like yeah. there's no, re, there's no, reframe, no, reframe, reframe the relationship with the events and themselves. For sure. And, and allow them to focus on, you know, what's important to them. You know, I love my family. I love my children and that's what matters. And I don't have to dwell on like whatever past happened in the past or, or anything like that. So th these are some of the things that, that, um, that people report. Um, um, but it's different. It's different for everybody. And there's no real, like, there's, like I said, there's many theories. There's no um, sort of agreed, you know, route by which all this works and, right. and by which it happens. Yeah. What you just described, I resonate with. I remember as a teenager, I used psychedelics in the more traditional, <gasps> traditional like yeah. serving. Yeah. And um, like I'd go to a Grateful Dead concert and take a tab of acid or skip squirrely, take some mushrooms, go on a hike with buddies, things like that. Um, had really good experiences, probably had a handful of experiences. And then I had a really bad experience. Uh, and then I never did them since until a few years ago. And um, it was interesting because the bad experience, I, uh, I had fallen and hurt myself and my friend got really scared and like abandoned me. So I had like the rest of the night by myself in pain and I was um, dripping balls and it was problematic. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because in hindsight, now that as an adult, I've revisited them on like a microdose level and really gone slow and got a lot of benefit in ways that you spoke about, like able to kind of observe things from my past more objectively and say, oh, that's why I did that. No, I don't need to do that anymore. I could think this way about that. But in that process, I learned that a lot of the struggles I dealt with emotionally were from feelings of being abandoned because my parents split up, my dad left. And it was interesting, like I had such a fear of touching my um, psychedelics, even though I had friends like recommending it because they knew I was in a tough place. And now I'm realizing, oh, I was scared because my last experience with them, I was abandoned. And like abandonment has been fucking me for a long time, unknowingly. Mm -hmm. um, but that raises a question. So I've been just slowly, you know, tinkering a little bit with some pretty small doses. And you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the serving five, um, 25 milligrams of uh, what's the psilocybin, psilocybin, psilocybin. Yeah. Um, and you said that equates to five grams of mushrooms. So to me, that sounds like kind of a monster dose. Like, mm -hmm. is that the only dose you guys are testing or is that how it's traditionally going to come? So, um, that's another very good point. That is the, um, sort of the generally accepted therapeutic clinical dose is 25 milligrams of psilocybin. That is like roughly uh, equates to um, uh, five grams of, you know, golden teacher mushrooms are very, are probably the most um, uh, popular strain. They contain about 0.5% psilocybin, according to our analysis. Um, but no, people can, people can do whatever dose they want. I mean, we make a one, five uh, and 25 milligram capsules. Uh, so, you know, you, you can okay. pick your, pick your poison really. Um, um, and, um, oh, it's, it's fascinating to hear of, of your story and your bad, bad, bad experience. It, 
one of the, the things that we hear about bad experience, so the, the, the purists will say, there is actually no such thing as a bad experience. The bad experience is like sort of the healing of you realizing, you know, what's your underlying trauma, right? Now, you falling and hurting yourself and then your friend leaving you, that's maybe a little bit too much kind of rubbing the salt in the wound maybe or something <laughs> yeah. like that, right? Um, so it might have been a little bit different if your friend had like stayed or, you know, if you had right. been in a in a doctor's office or a therapist's office, right? right? right. Um, it, you know, not like bleeding with your leg cut open <laughs> in the rock somewhere. Um, but that's what, and then, and, and some people will even say, well, when a patient is sick or nauseous, you know, this could actually, this is a physical manifestation of their sort of bad memories or bad issues leaving their body, right? We're getting kind of into like the hippie side of things. Um, our clinical trial site. This channel, that side is very welcome. Yeah, sure, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, the, so in our clinical trial site, they've run, you know, a couple hundred people now through um, through um, uh, psilocybin clinical trials, typically very high doses, 25 milligrams. And they have on hand these drugs that are able to block the psychedelic effects. They're called trip, a trip blocking kit in case things get out of hand and the patient says, I'm done. Hmm. And they said, in many cases, people do have a bad trip, right? In many cases, they're, you know, they're, it's really not pleasant, but never have they actually used this trip blocker. Never has one, hmm. somebody actually said, I'm done. Because they know, I think, um, that this tough experience that they're going through is kind of like the pain necessary to, you know, you, you, don't, you don't get anything for free, right? Um, so it's the it's sort of like the price that they're paying or the work that they're doing in order to um, help themselves in the long term and work through various issues. And I they think have, that's and they have support. Like there's someone. And they have there. support. They're 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 in a, they're on a comfy couch. They're at the UCSF Medical Center. You know they're you know there's a hospital across the street. There's you know all these nice people who are very experienced you know holding your hand or giving you water and you know there's you know a Himalayan salt crystal in the corner right giving you good ions and the whole deal. Okay, yeah. So that, I'm sure that makes a big difference. And the people that are doing that work, I assume, are fit for that job. Um, very experienced. Again, yeah. like they they can't because they work for University of California. They can't say, oh, I'm a, you know, very experienced underground black market psilocybin <laughs> practitioner, right, right. Uh, but let's, you know, uh, uh, so they can't advertise that, but um, so uh, I, they, I, leave it said that they have lots of experience. I have two questions. The trip blocking kit, what is that? What's the compound you give someone that makes it stop? So um, different antipsychotics like okay. Abilify or Risperidone, um, they can actually block uh, the um, the receptor from receiving the the serotonin uh, analogs, which is the case okay. of, of their um, they prevent the psilocin from activating the serotonin receptor um, because there's there are strong antagonists of that receptor. So that's that's basically that's basically what happens. People, it's although I should say this is an area that hasn't been well researched. Um, there's a lot of sort of internet reporting on Reddit and other platforms. You know, people say I'm on SSRIs or I'm on um, uh, antipsychotics and, you know, my trip is, you know, I'm not affected or my trip is affected more or not at all. Or, you know, this is all very early stages. And 
we're only just sort of scratching the surface of um, uh, of of this avenue of research. Um, but what we have seen in a few of these special access program um, cases is that people who are on antipsychotics like Abilify do have their trip blocked, um, which is which is kind of interesting. Now the follow-on question is even if they have their trip blocked, do they get better, right? That's kind gotcha. of a very, very interesting question. Yeah, for sure. Uh, those doses, are, so 25, I guess, do you have, so other than when, if someone's on a antipsychotic or one of those compounds that would block would be a antagonist, is that the word? Antagonist yep. to the receptor. Um, do you ever give someone 25 milligrams and then nothing happens? Or is that like a dose where you don't have to worry about whether they're going to feel something? The only time the 25 milligram dose has been um, ineffective is if they are on an antipsychotic. Gotcha. So you mentioned SSRIs a minute ago. Those are, from what I understand, uh, very prevalent in society. And I guess there's a lot of mixed opinions and mixed data on uh, how useful they are. I've talked to people that are on them that um, swear by them and like really don't want to get off them. I don't know if it's just a fear, like they don't believe that they can live without them. I don't know if it's actually what it's doing. I've heard people talk that um, anything that increases serotonin is really not ideal. Um, so I'm not really sure what to believe in that world. My question, though, more my um, curiosity would be for someone that's on SSRIs that desires to wean off, you know, you know, somehow get to a day where they're not on them. And if this can be a tool that could help bridge that gap, is anybody studying like how to go about that? Like, is there is this something where if you're on SSRIs, you can use this tool to maybe work with whatever's driving this depression so that you don't need um, to be taking anything. Do you, is that like a delicate process? Is there anybody working on that? Like we like transitioning? That's another great question. You know, almost all I would say of the people who could be targeted for psilocybin therapy would be on an SSRI or have tried many SSRIs and they failed or something like that. Right. Okay. Um, a lot of things you said about the controversy around SSRIs are true. They SSRI only has a 30% chance of working on the first uh, course of treatment. Um, and after multiple treatments, um, you only have a 60% chance of finding one that works in order to find whether it's working. It takes usually a couple months, right? So you could go years, and not find one that works. Um, they have side effects, right? Weight gain, you know, brain fog, uh, sexual dysfunction, people report. Um, now, it's, it's not all bad. They do actually work for a lot of people, right? And then the, the important thing with all this to say is that people should not be playing around with their own dosing regimen. They should be doing any of this in, in, consultation, in consultation with their doctor. However, there is research going on. And in fact, there's one clinical trial that's underway here um, in Vancouver using our drug, administering it to people who are actively taking SSRIs. Up till now, almost all research has required people that are either not on SSRIs or to taper off SSRIs before the study. And this may be one thing that has kind of been messing with the results, right? Because you can imagine people for whom SSRIs don't work 
maybe actually particularly difficult people to treat, right? Hmm. And then, or if you taper them off, they may be having withdrawal or something like that. So you may be kind of playing around with the, with the population. So the study that we're providing drugs to here in Vancouver is actually giving the psilocybin to people who are on SSRIs. Your specific question about tapering, uh, that hasn't been done yet, um, but I'm sure that would be kind of the next step is like, how can we use maybe use psilocybin to help taper people off? I mean, I think what we would really shoot for is even further than that is how can we use psilocybin in place of SSRIs, right? We're seeing that in the, the best head-to-head -head studies that psilocybin is at least as effective as typical SSRIs, um, but it doesn't come with all the side effects. It, people report that it actually helps them work through the root cause issues that's causing the depression rather than kind of like masking it or like helping them work through it. Um, you only need to take it once and then you can maybe have several months of treatment effect rather than having to take a daily pill every day. So there's a, there's a lot of advantages, although the downsides are you have to, you can't take it at home. You have to take it in a therapist's office. It, you know, you have a six to eight hour okay. trip, you know, th that kind of a thing. I mean, they are—they're both tinkering with the same receptor. So not really. So the SSRI prevents your body; they're a reuptake inhibitor. So they prevent your body from kind of reabsorbing the serotonin that it naturally produces, which leads to an increase in serotonin in your body, and okay. and and that's kind of the theory behind well, why it works. But that serotonin theory that you mentioned is showing to not be super robust. So there was a big study and meta-analysis that was recently done and it did not correlate um, increased serotonin levels to lessen depression. So the, this whole idea of serotonin was kind of turned on its head a little bit in the last few months by a big new study. Gotcha. I wanna get out there a little bit. Um, why, do you, why do you think mushrooms are here, man? Like, why does this exist? You know, we, we, that's another reason we, we do not know, right? Like typical. So I'll give you another example. Like not caffeine. we though, not we, we Ben, we, you, you so, why do you so, think they exist? So there's a, there's a really, there's a good cartoon or a meme that I saw on the internet. And it was the first screen was like, God gives man all these tools like mushrooms to like help themselves. Right. And then in the next screen, man, makes mushrooms illegal and then in the third screen god was like like on his forehead going you idiots right it's a tool that we have to help us grow and learn and experience more about the world i mean anyone who's taken a mushroom trip like on the beach with their friends and like everything becomes sort of like magical and you know you experience more of everything right there's you know, it, 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 it just leads to a more fulfilled and deepened life, right? It's just a tool that we have. We don't actually know, like we think that the mushrooms evolved these compounds in order, like as, as a toxin, right? As, 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 a, as a poison so that, you know, if an animal comes and eats it, you know, they'll be confused or something and then they won't come back and eat the same one. But that theory never really sat that well with me, right? Because there's lots of poisonous mushrooms that actually kill you, right? So <laughs> that, wouldn't that be easier, right, right? To just kill the thing. And plus the spores that are contained in the mushrooms are very, very, very hardy. So they can survive if a 
like a so a jungle cat is walking around and eats the mushroom, they can actually survive going through the jungle and being excreted out the other side. And then you can plant essentially with spores um, uh, in a in a different area, right? Like it's you know it it's it's the it's the mystery of how you know millions, hundreds of millions, billions of years of evolution have led to amazing things in the natural world. And we're only just now, like sort of really starting to scratch the surface of, um, of why they exist. Caffeine is another, caffeine is another fascinating example. So caffeine obviously is, is, a, is a substance that we know for, for larger species, like things that are the size of bees and up, it actually helps your memory, right? It increases your focus, your mental clarity, you know, helps you remember. So if you're a bee, you come and you get caffeine from a certain plant, it will help you remember where to find that plant again. And you can come back and pollinate it and everybody wins. It's a symbiotic relationship. But if you're an aphid or a small, small insect, the caffeine is actually toxic to you. So it will kill you, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing that one compound can have two completely different purposes, but it's in the same plant and it's the same compound? I find that example just like to totally, totally incredible. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned the spores are really hardy. I heard that they could survive like space, like uh, the vacuum of outer space. I don't know if that's been actually tested into something they know or just somebody said and spread. I, I think it is possible for certain spores to survive in space. Like spores in general are very, very hardy. I don't know that NASA has ever on their long list of to-dos has put, you know, sending magic mushrooms to the moon. <laughs> Although, like, if so. I'm trying to get out there a little bit. I mean, is it possible that this is some form of communication that's sent across uh, very far distances? Could be. I mean, could be like, you know, did the guys that came and taught the Egyptians how to build period pyramids, did they also leave us with magic mushrooms or something like that? I mean, could be. I mean, the sports like If you wanted travel. to send something out there, they could travel but is a form of communication to whoever it reaches. Because this is the thing that messes with me. Um, when you talk to people that have uh, profound experiences with these mushrooms, there's some consistencies. Like as far as the conclusions they come to, which just seems like, like, is that a coincidence? Like something along the lines of, feeling more connected, mm -hmm. feeling like everything is one, everything is connected. Uh, there's a oneness that they're a part of. Mm -hmm. Like, is there a reason behind that? Um, and maybe it doesn't matter. It, you know, it's just, it's cool that we have another tool in the toolkit to help people. And obviously you're playing a big part in that in, in your role in the, and filament health's role, obviously. But it just makes me wonder, like, um, when I think about why this stuff is here that it's hard for me to believe that that has nothing to do with it the fact mm -hmm. that everybody has this even though they're different experiences there's a shared component of the experience or or maybe it says something about us that we all have similar problems in our modern society and that we're all suffering from similar things a lack of connectedness right and that right. this tool helps us to find that out maybe maybe in another world if we had too much connectedness 
maybe this tool would help us figure out that we need less connectedness. I mean, I don't, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Kind of a stupid example, but um, <laughs> the point is maybe, maybe we'll all suffer the reason that we seem to have similar experiences, um, which I definitely agree with. Um, maybe it's because we all um, have similar problems. Maybe if you went to like a traditional society, you know, where people are still living, you know, tribal style and, you know, all together under the same roof, um, Maybe if they took psychedelics, they would have a, something different rather than mm. if us in the West, you know, all sheltered away in our single family houses and grandparents living across the country, you know, we all suffer from lack of connectedness and lack of access to nature and those kinds of things. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, as more of this stuff does unfolds, more of the research, how the, um, like, the purist or the hippie side community um like interacts with the more sciencey like western model of you know pharmaceuticals and such and you know they both serve i think really good purposes like like on one hand i think i i know um there's like a naturalist in me i guess and you can make an argument that everything a pharmaceutical company does is natural because a bunch of humans doing it it's just a progression of natural, but I know that I've gone to the cannabis dispensary where they sell really high octane stuff and haven't got a whole lot out of it, but the random seed that a friend gives me that I throw over my shoulder into the garden turns out to be my greatest teacher mm. every single time I interact mm. with it in the pipe or whatever. And mm. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, it's not as potent. Does this, am I building a relationship with it as I walk out and look at it and water? Is it knowing me? I don't want to pretend, I don't want to be ridiculous, but I don't want to pretend that I know what's going on because uh, I do believe knowledge is the biggest obstacle to understanding. Mm -hmm. So there's something there that's interesting to me. And I've heard shamans talk about like, don't go and get the dandelion detox tea at the local health store. The dandelion in your yard will work better. Like there's, is there something there? But I also know that a lot of people aren't gonna put a seed in their garden and then hope that it's medicine. I know there's, you know, not just a generation like my parents' generation, but there's a lot of people out there that, won't get exposure to these powerful medicines unless uh, their their doc their primary care doctor mm -hmm. says I have a colleague down the street that does these in his office. It's going to be interesting to see how those two worlds um, mingle. I agree. It's a, it, a another great question, and it's something that we're seeing kind of in the psychedelics industry happen play out real time. You have the kind of OG old school community that kind of carried the torch for us through prohibition that, you know, Paul Stamets was publishing books under pseudonyms back in the 70s and 80s because they were afraid of the DEA coming knocking on their door and throwing them in jail for publishing a book about how to cultivate magic mushrooms, right? So it's thanks to them that the torch, the flame was kept alive and like only by the barest of flickers sometimes, right? And now we can sort of walk around and act like psychedelics are fully legal without any fear of prosecution and we can openly talk about it and 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 blah 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 however like you said you know 
if we want the most people to have access and benefits, we need something that, you know, like I tell my team, like, we're not trying to convince the hippies, right? The hippies <laughs> already can go get mushrooms in the forest and that's okay, right? The, hopefully they know which ones are poisonous and which ones are magic mushrooms. But like, those aren't the people we're trying to convince. We're going after, we're like the Republican party. We're going after the suburban moms, right? That's who, that's really though, like that's who we're trying to convince. That's where the market can grow and where more people can benefit. And it's not a zero sum game, right? Like it's, it's not a zero sum game. It's not an and or thing. Right. Like if a suburban mom gets a capsule, the, the hippie in the forest is not in, infringed or, or prevented in any way from, from doing what they're doing. Um, so sometimes, you know, there's people have very personal feelings and experiences. And, and even, you know, sometimes if you can believe it, we get attacked for being anti-natural, right? It's like, well, why would you bother extracting it and standardizing it when the mushroom just works on its own? And it's like, well, yeah, the mushroom will work for some people. I agree for you psychonaut that has been, that will try anything and, you know, will grow it in your, in your basement and all these kinds of things. But the average person will not do that, right? Mm -hmm. The average person needs something that, like you said, is recommended by their GP, comes in a bottle, says 25 milligrams right on the thing. Um, and that's the only way they're going to take it. And really, that's the way that we're going to increase the acceptability um, and perhaps the fuller legalization is also by showing regulators that these kinds of standardized products exist. And if they, you know, push go on psilocybin further legalization, it's not just going to be a crazy shit show with like all kinds of weird <laughs> mushrooms growing everywhere. Right, right. <laughs> not that mushrooms are bad, right? If they, I mean, like, I'm, we're not anti-mushroom. We're pro-mushroom. Otherwise, we would just be making it via synthesis. Right. Yeah. I'm glad that you're doing it the way you are. Um, it's nice. It's exciting. What, um, I had a couple questions. Where do I want to go? Um, the, well, let's talk about it. We've been talking a lot about mushrooms. Like, are there other, I know there's other common um, psychedelics. Are there other ones that you particularly are focusing on with um, the company and the labs? Like we are, we have a, an ayahuasca pill in development. Um, and we're also working on mescaline. Um, oh, okay. and we're extracting mescaline from, uh, San Pedro cactus. Um, mescaline is the same compound that's found in peyote. And so one of the interesting things, um, about some of these other sources rather than mushrooms is that, you know, it's not really that feasible to grow the cacti or the ayahuasca vines in house. Right. So now we have to source them from external parties. And some of these species are obviously very, very culturally sensitive, right? And so we have to be sure to develop sources of supply that are both sustainable from like a practical sense. We can't have anything that is being over harvested or is going extinct or anything like that. We want to make sure that it's something that has like an industry, a sustainable industry beside it. And then the other thing you need to make sure of is that if there's any kind of traditional knowledge that you actually have the prior informed consent um, of the local traditional people. So that's one thing that we're working with in um, uh, different countries in South America is to actually get, you know, fully compliant sources of supply uh, from these different groups and from these different countries. So it's a, adding a whole nother layer of complexity onto 
doing things naturally, right? Because if you just synthesize mescaline in your lab, then, you know, you're not going to go and, you know, get permission from, you know, XYZ people in Peru or Colombia or wherever they might be. So you mentioned uh, ayahuasca and mescaline. I actually, uh, over the last few years, have been experimenting with that San Pedro a little bit, microdosing cool. and fantastic. I find yeah. that if I microdose with a mushroom, it's also fantastic, but I don't really want to have things on my schedule. Mm. Um, and if I microdose with San Pedro, it's like the most productive version of me that I've ever met. And it works in completely different sets of receptors. Uh, it's the, the effects are caused by totally different things. It's very, very, really. yeah, it's not a 5-HT2A agonist. It's not a serotonin analog. It, it, we don't actually really know. We know really? much, much I less. I thought they about, were like the same. No, well, this is no, no. Yeah, no. And, and, and that's sort of more evidence in support of why we don't really know how any of this works is because you have these two <laughs> completely different compounds producing kind of similar effects in people, but different. Um, and and your, what you just said is, is pretty common. People that have experienced mescaline are like, I really, really like it. And so that's why we're, that's why we're, we're working on that um, hmm. as one of our next products. I find that the benefit psychologically is very similar. Meaning you mentioned like rumination earlier. Like I used to have these really uh, negative thought cycles that I would get stuck in. Um, and it'd be like, this thought leads to this one, leads to this one. It'd be right. all day. It'd be not all day, but multiple times through the day, every day. And definitely, I wouldn't consider myself like depressed at the time, but it was clearly negatively affecting my quality of life. And both the mushroom and the San Pedro allow me to not get into those thought cycles and be positive. Um but one is like this kind of earthy energy that's like warm and fuzzy and my body feels good. And the, the San Pedro is like, it's like eating a teaspoon of the sun. Hmm. It's just like this energy that's like emerging from within that feels also very connected, um, part of nature and just really productive, like really focused. Eyesight is sharp. Cognition is sharp, um, but that's interesting because I really thought that on the brain, it was like the same area of activity. That's interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. You mentioned um, the ayahuasca that I've never tinkered with. Uh, from what I remember hearing about it is if you're taking ayahuasca, there's like a two-step thing. Like you have to take something first or after or do you have so to work you, that into your when when you're making it in the lab? We we do. So ayahuasca is traditionally um, actually given out as an extract, right? So the shaman will pr will prepare a brew, and it's actually extracts of two different plant species, which is fascinating. One contains DMT, and one contains uh, something called MAOI, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and. The issue with DMT is that if you consume it orally, it gets broken down in the body very quickly by monoamine oxidase uh, enzymes, and you don't actually experience any effects. But what the indigenous people in the Amazon actually figured out is that if you provide it in conjunction with this other extract, which contains an inhibitor to the enzyme that's breaking the DMT down, 
if you consume both of these extracts together, you'll experience the effects of the DMT. Isn't that amazing? Right? How did that, they like, ever figure that out? I, I wish I'd been there. I'm sure it took, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating example illustrating how humans have always looked into nature to provide food, sustenance, medicine, recreational substances, and to tinker, right? Like probably a lot of poisonous mushrooms were eaten by people before they found the one that was magic, right? right. Um, who knows what happened with the, with the, uh, who knows how the knowledge of the ayahuasca came, came, came to be like, this one thing is only effective if you take it with this other thing. Do they um, grow that, naturally right next to each other? They grow in the same sort of general area. Yeah. But they're, they're not they're I, I don't think that they're like growing on top of each other. Like the growing isn't intertwined, but you, they have to know that this vine and this leaf, when you extract them and you consume them together, then you get the experience. Hmm. They, There's other they... ones like bufotenin, which uh, is known as Yopo. Um, this is another one where um, if you consume it orally, it has no effect, but if you snuff it, so if you light it in a pipe and then breathe it in through your nose, or actually what the traditional way of consuming it is, the shaman will breathe the smoke in and then put a sort of like a breathing tube up to your nose and then blow it out and force it down your nose. And the tube is typically made out of a femur bone uh, so this is like getting, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very naturalistic. Um, this is another one, right. Where they, they figured out that essentially if you vaporize it and you inhale it, it's bioactive, but if you consume it orally, like if you just munch on the seed, it won't have any effect. But does it have to be inhaled through the nose? It can't be inhaled. No, through it the could mouth? be, it could be okay. inhaled through the mouth too. Yeah. As long as it goes right into the lungs. Or that's crazy. Um, the ayahuasca, the one that has the, the two plants, have there ever been animals observed that munch on both of these? That like feed on both? That, I do, that I do not know. Uh, that I do not know. Um, I, I haven't heard of anything. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but it, 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 it could be. It could be. What, like what, what's your hope um, from all of this? Uh, if you were to fast forward five, 10 years and you're looking at not just the industry, but really its impact on, I don't know, uh, the human race, civilization, the planet. What do you, like, what do you, when you're sitting about, you know, dreaming about this stuff or whatever, what are you hoping for? I mean, I think if we could somehow do mandatory 15 milligram dose or higher of psilocybin for all people on the planet over the age of 18, um, I think we'd probably have like less war, less environmental destruction. Um, like it's, it's hard to imagine Putin sending his armies to invade Ukraine, you know, after having done like a really magical mushroom trip the night before. Um, I hope for a world where people have the freedom to choose, you know, what they put in their bodies. Um, uh, you know, Often in the sort of medical psychedelics industry, there's this line where it's like, I, I call it, there's like two dirty R words that nobody wants to talk about. One of them is revenue, right? Because all these companies, they're a long way away from getting revenue. And the other one is recreational. And the reason people don't want to talk about it, they say, we're a drug development company. We're a medical company. These are you know, very powerful substances. They have to be taken under supervision. And yes, I agree, like most people require uh, supervision 
if they are particularly ill or trying to treat something or something like that. But let's also respect the like millions and millions of people that are already consuming psychedelics out in the real world, right? To pretend that we don't already have recreational psychedelics is just being ignorant of, you know, the facts, right? So I think we need to have a little bit more respect of like people's ability to choose for themselves, but that ability to choose for themselves requires them to have sort of like safe and standardized products with which to experiment, right? They can't, they, they, if they don't know exactly what they're putting in their body, then they can't make informed decisions for themselves. Um, you know, I think, you know, a, a, a sort of a societal shift away from alcohol as the default uh, sort of drug of choice, um, which in fact, we're already seeing, right? Young people are drinking less, you know, it's expensive, it's bad for your health, you're hungover, blah, blah, blah. You know, when I take magic mushrooms at a wedding, the next, I, I feel great the next day, right? And I probably had more fun at the wedding, right? And people were like lining up, oh, are you the mushroom guy? Can I have some mushrooms, right? So it, like, it's, it's, it, I, I don't know. I think psychedelics, I really truly believe that only good things on average, there's going to be bad experiences, obviously, but only good things on average will come to society if we, you know, let the floodgates open a little bit more inch by inch. Gotcha. And speaking of let, letting them inch by inch, I mean, it speaks to like the legality. Is that, I assume that's still like the biggest challenge. You're in Canada where I think the rules are different there than in the States. I think some of the States got pretty loose here. Um, do you, are yeah. you, I assume you keep up to date with like what that is looking like and how all the legality is unfolding. We do. And so um, actually earlier this year in January, um, Oregon State, obviously Oregon, pushed go on legalization. So psilocybin is now legal, um, statewide, not federally legal, right? Gotcha. Um, so it's kind of similar to cannabis, right? Where you're going to have this patchwork of different states with different schemes. You know, in Oregon, you can only consume the psilocybin at what's called a service center. You have to be supervised by what's called a facilitator. You have to apply if you want to sell products, you have to get a manufacturing license and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's quite um, regulated um, and structured. I think they want to be very cautious as the very first state, right? They don't want things to go completely sideways. The next state that already passed a ballot measure in the fall was uh, Colorado. And so in the next couple of years, they're going to have a rules making committee and implement rules and then blah, blah, blah. They're, they're going to have a slightly more, I would say, probably open um, uh, market. They're going to be allowing uh, people to consume personally. They're going to be allowing more than just psilocybin to be legal. Um, and then we'll see. There's various um, um, state um, legislative assemblies that have bills and things like that. So it's, it's, it's coming for sure. It's, it's a question of when, not if. Are we at the point where people aren't really getting in trouble for it, though? Like, like the states we are. that are... We, we are. are. Okay. We are. We are. Many, many places have passed decriminalization um, policies. These are a lot different than legalization, right? Legalization, it's like there's a law that says you can do this. Decriminalization usually means something like the mayor removed funding from the police to enforce any crimes okay. related to psychedelics. Gotcha. Okay. So it's still illegal. And, and definitely in all these cases, like the federal DEA could show up and say, and throw you in jail. Right. right. Um, but they but haven't been. 
They haven't been. Um, they have. They they haven't been. There there's been no formal guidance from the DEA like there was uh, with cannabis, where they essentially said, "Look, we're like not going to prosecute you for like personal use and like okay. state level legal stuff." Um, but it's exciting to hear this. It is exciting. It is exciting. It's, it's funny. It's I was exciting. in jail in Virginia uh, for drug for a drug that's totally. And I know there's a lot of people that are still in jail for things for victimless nonviolent crimes for things that if that happened today they would not be in jail and that's really uh disheartening very very it's it's very depressing to think about and it's also when we see the clinical benefits to people who suffer a lot yeah and the benefits that they receive now and all the millions and millions of people that could have benefited during the time of prohibition that's what I try not to think about because it, it's all it, it's it's too sad to even consider, right? Yeah. The the harm done by people thrown in jail, and also the 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 help that wasn't able to be provided to people. Hmm. Uh, it, it, I'm I'm excited what this could mean, especially like these last few years been so stressful on everybody, um, and I think a lot of people don't know yet because they're not really well versed with uh how stress comes and how it affects the body or how trauma affects so i think over the next few years as people wake up and realize oh man i've been in rough shape these last few years i didn't know like i didn't realize what the pandemic really did to me i was just like focused on what i had to do or whatever and it all comes bubbling up it's going to be important to have more and more awareness and more of these tools and I'm excited for companies like Filament Health doing what they're doing. And it sounds like um, you're you're doing it. I'm sure there's uh, financial incentives, but it sounds like you're doing it for the right reason and you really believe and passionate about what you do. So it's exciting to think that there's there's been light hearts out there, light burns out there uh, doing this and, um, and spreading this good message. And uh, I'm grateful to be a conduit for the message here at the Mindful Movement. Um, I want to thank you for taking your time out. You're a CEO, so I know your time is valuable. I, I don't want to disrespect it here. Is If people want to learn more, um, what do you recommend? How can they learn about more about what Filament Health is doing? Or is there anything else you'd like to share as far as um, pointing people in a certain direction? No, I think we had a fantastic conversation with a lot of great questions hitting on all of the key issues uh, facing not just our company, but, but the psychedelics uh, arena in, in general. Um, we always tell people to go to our website, sign up for our mailing list. Um, um, we keep people up to date with everything that's going on with the company. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what we recommend. Great. Um, and for the listeners out there, thanks again for your listening. Always grateful. I uh, hope you got some value out of this. And if you feel like you know somebody that is struggling and just wants to start to broaden their education on the topic, then uh, hopefully you send this episode their way. I hope everybody out there has a great day. Thanks again. Well, I want to thank everybody again for tuning in to my talk with Ben Lightburn from Filament Health. I really enjoyed this. I really didn't know what to expect. I don't usually speak to CEOs of public companies, but I found it to be a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Um, as I've made it clear, psychedelics have been a part of my life off and on, and um, they've been an important part. I mean, that's the clearest way to say it. I've gone through some really important periods of my healing journey where 
these powerful plants have kind of been holding my hand to get through them. And I'm really grateful that they exist. And um, I'm really grateful that there's companies out there that are going to help these, these plants reach more people. So again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you have any questions about anything, please send it my way. and I'll do my best to respond. Have a great day.